I need to get this Snickers bar out of my pocket because it's hot up here, and I don't want a melted Snickers bar at the end of the service. So anyone else with one in their pocket, I highly recommend you do the same. <laughs> uh, but happy Father's Day again. And we began this series in 1 Timothy, which I, I just uh, be, began with recounting, recounting the fact that when we adopted Davion, we told him, well, basically, you need to act like a Cokeman now. You're officially a Cokeman. You know, you bear that name. And uh, his question was, well, you know, does that mean I have to be an Eagles fan? And the answer is yes. But the point is, is that uh, when we are in the house of God, we are his children. We operate under his rules of the house. And that's why we're in this series called House Rules this morning, uh, is that Timothy is told by the Apostle Paul in chapter three, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I'm writing to you uh, so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The idea being that as we listen in on this conversation between Paul, the mentor, and Timothy, the protege, that we're reminded that we're under these rules as well. And at this critical crossroads in the life of our church, not much unlike the situation in which Timothy found himself in the, the church in Ephesus, uh, that we want to remind ourselves of the imperatives that, that God has for us and how to do church in a way that puts all the focus on Christ. So uh, in the first week, we learned that the minister's charge and the aim of that charge is love, is to see love produced as a result of sound doctrine and teaching, uh, correcting dissenters along the way, correcting false teaching, standing for sound doctrine, and that produces love. And last week we learned that the the ground of all of this, for Paul, the ground of his ministry, the ground of our ministry, the ground of the very reason why we're here is is not that we just have a set of rules, but that Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's this gospel of grace that binds us all together. And so Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare, acknowledging this. And so in chapter 2, Verses 1 through 7 is where we find ourselves this morning. And please stand with me as we read God's word and as we dive in. Paul says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And Father, as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would open it up. We pray that you would get me out of the way. We pray that you would help us to put these words into practice in the way that we pray and in the way that we conduct ourselves in the house of God. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this week we want to see that the minister and the church, these are instructions to Timothy, but not just Timothy, right? So the minister and the whole church, both personally, individually in your prayer closet and corporately together as a body like here this morning, we must fight for faith and love through gospel-shaped prayer. And that's the title of the message this morning, is Gospel-Shaped Prayer. But why does uh, Paul start with this? Why does he say, first of all, then I urge? So this is 
first, this is paramount, this is foremost, and he says then, he says therefore. So he's saying, this is the most important thing that I'm going to lead off with, and it's based on what came before, because he says the word therefore, right? And the immediate context proceeding is when he is telling Timothy to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then he makes note of Hymenaeus and Alexander who rejected these things and made shipwreck of their faith. And they did so through blasphemy. So others have neglected this charge to their own spiritual suicide. And it's suicide by blasphemy. And that's not just saying certain words that, that you say them and you're magically condemned all of a sudden. The sin, the sin of blasphemy is external and internal. And what's meant here is not just the external utterance of blasphemous words, but it's also the internal attitude of a heart that, that spurns and disregards and dishonors holy things, the things of God, scriptural things. So prayerlessness is the external manifestation of an internal disregard for the things of God. If you don't care about the things of God inside, one of the first and most obvious and visible fruits of that is going to be prayerlessness. Not murder, not adultery, not all of the, you know, the, the biggies, right? But prayerlessness. Charles Spurgeon said a prayerless church member is a hindrance. He's in the body like a rotting bone or a decayed tooth. Before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of his brethren, he becomes a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. So prayerless people in the body of Christ, and I think if we're all honest, we can say probably at one season or another, maybe we've all fallen into that category. But prayerlessness in the body threatens the body the same way a diseased member threatens the whole So the opposite of this making shipwreck of your faith is a life of vibrant prayer. Prayer isn't just a thing to do. It's not just the first step on a long checklist of of commands. It's also as natural to the Christian as breathing, right? It it should be as, as natural and as fundamental as walking or as breathing. That's the role that prayer plays. And so that's why it's ranked here first and foremost, not to mention that it's also the easiest thing that we can do for other people. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the easiest way that we can do that is by praying for others. And so Paul puts prayer at the top of his list here. And the main point is that we should pray in a a way that's shaped by the gospel. And there's really only one basic command that Paul gives here. He says that we ought to pray for all sorts of people. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So the structure of this, if you're tracking it, look at the text. You have that basic command, prayers to be made for all people. Then he gives a qualification. For who, Paul? And so he says, well, for kings. And he goes on there. Then he gives the basis for the, for the command, for the imperative. He says, this is good. God desires all people to be saved. And then he unpacks that further. Right. So if you're making an outline of this, this is just a point inside of a point inside of a point inside of a point. He gives further explication of the basis for that imperative for there is one God and there's one mediator. And then he also laughs and he ties it up with how that relates to his apostolic office in verse seven. He says, he says, for this, I was appointed a preacher. And he goes on. All that is to say that there's one command being given here, and that's to pray for all people. And when Paul explains why, where does he go? He goes to the gospel. The gospel is what shapes our prayer. The gospel is the reason that we pray. The gospel, if we rightly understand it, should lead us into 
a vibrant lifestyle of prayer. So what I want to do this morning is just break down three components, three pieces of gospel-shaped prayer. Show three ways that the gospel should mold our conversation with the Lord. And the first you see it in the first two verses is that our prayer, gospel-centered prayer, must be indiscriminate. Gospel-shaped prayer is indiscriminate. He says, picking it up in verse 2, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So our society is obsessed with differences. It's obsessed with distinctions. Right Out in the world, black, white, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, suburban, urban, conservative, liberal, the list goes on probably endlessly, right? And this leaks into the culture of the church, too. Right? We have men's groups and women's groups and children's groups and seniors' groups, and none of those groupings are bad. It's not bad to make distinctions, but the point is, is that in prayer, the walls come down. When the church comes together to pray, we don't need to be making distinctions between ranks or classes of individuals. People in every station of life are a part of corporate prayer here. And so when Paul says, I urge that prayers be made for all people in verse 1, is he saying that the only way to faithfully discharge this command, this is a comparison that I heard as I was preparing, is that, you know, does that mean that in the first century they had to go in Ephesus and find whatever the first century equivalent was of the phone book or maybe an exhaustive Google ranking, right? Because phone books, are, that's probably a dated reference at this point. But did they have to go find the first century phone book and pray through every single name? Is that exactly what's going on here? Well, that would be impossible. It's impossible for us, too. Gospel-shaped prayer is not exhaustive. It's not going to be each and every individual, just that's reality, but it will be indiscriminate. It's all kinds of people with no discrimination between class or anything. And we know this because he immediately follows it up and he says, let's pray for kings and for all who are in high positions. So he's including all sorts of people in all stations of life. But it's interesting, if, if you're giving instructions on prayer, why does he immediately launch into praying for leaders in the civil realm, in the governmental realm? Right? Why, why does he focus on that? I think, there's, I think there's three reasons that we can draw out. First, let's be honest, if you can pray for politicians, you can literally pray for anybody. Right? If you have a heart for people that are involved in government, then you have a very soft, compassionate heart. Uh, but it's true. Recently, David Platt, a name many of you probably know, fell under fire for praying for President Trump in the course of one of his services. And the story is actually interesting because the president showed up unannounced in the middle of a service. So it's sort of like, what would you do? And people uh, were, were divided by this. And obviously it's polarizing and whatnot. But the content of his prayer was exactly what's found here. It's praying for the rulers that they would have wisdom to make godly decisions those are the sorts of prayers that we need to be praying for our rulers. And I think as we look at this, and even as you see some of the controversy that's happened, if you, if you saw that in the news or, or in your social media feed, keep in mind, who was the Roman emperor when Paul wrote this? Nero, whose nickname was the Beast. Right? This man was as evil as a civil ruler has ever been. We pray for our leaders even when they're persecuting us. That's the standard that the gospel sets, is loving our enemies. You know, the Christian life, it's been said, is pretty easy, actually. So I'll talk to the men. We're here for Father's Day. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Also love your children, obviously, by extension. Uh, we're also supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves and also love all of your enemies. Other than that, there's nobody else that you have to love. But that pretty much covers it. But there's nobody else in that group. So Paul here is saying that we need to pray for them specifically. If you can pray for politicians, you can pray for anyone. Second, this prayer is also a prayer that there would be the conditions in which the gospel can be spread and the conditions in which the Great Commission can be fulfilled and the church can do its mission. Look at how he describes the content of this prayer. He says that we may lead a a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he's not saying that, that we, we want to pray to the end that we would have a cozy life of, of warm suburban indifference. That's not what he's saying, but he is, he is saying something similar to what he's saying, frankly, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10, and 12. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own business, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders, right? So there's this concept of public witness there and be dependent on no one. So he's not saying that the Christian life will ever cease to be a contact sport. It will always be a contact sport. But he's envisioning that if we're interceding for our rulers, for our leaders, and if God honors those prayers, we'll be free to work, free to worship, free to risk, preach, evangelize, that would be completely unencumbered in our mandate to disciple the nations. Not just our neighbor, but, and, and not just even the lowliest peasant, but all the way up to Caesar. And that's the third point that I think we can see here is that God dignifies the civil order. He says he cares about government, right? Obviously God cares about government. Government isn't evil. It, uh, Romans chapter 13 verses 4 and 5 say that the government, the, the ruler, is God's deacon, God's servant. He's God's deacon for your good to punish evildoers. So God cares about it. So, again, the three reasons. One, if you can pray for a politician, you can pray for anyone. Second, it's the conditions under which the church can do its job, be free from outside interference. And third is that we're also then praying for their conversion. Because think about this. If the government is the deacon of God, then by what standard does the government discharge its duty under God? By what standard? Well, by God's standard. Now, people get antsy and a little bit sweaty when we start talking about God and government in the same sentence or Jesus and government in the same sentence. But look at it this way. If we're praying for the conversion of our leaders, what happens when Caesar does bow the knee to Christ or the president or the mayor? Aren't they supposed to rule in a way that accords with God's unchanging, timeless standards? Of course they are. But see, often when we pray for our rulers, I I genuinely believe we pray like Rhoda. If you remember in the book of Acts, when Peter's thrown in prison and the church in Jerusalem is meeting and praying together, and Peter uh, is released by angels in the middle of the night, and he comes and he goes to this house where they're having this all-night prayer meeting, And he knocks on the door and this servant girl, Rhoda, comes and answers. And then she turns away and runs inside the house. She doesn't even believe that Peter's standing there. She's praying for his release. But the church had no expectation that God would actually apparently grant that request. They were surprised when it actually came true. So look at the way that we pray for our rulers if we pray for them. But we need to pray for them and we need to pray 
not just what Proverbs 21 says. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whichever way he will. We also need to pray all the way up to their conversion. Let's pray for the conversion of President Trump. Let's pray for Tom Wolf, that he would be a governor who, who, who rejects the culture of death and abortion and repents of that and who leads the state of Pennsylvania into standing for life. Let's pray for Pat Toomey and for Bob Casey that they would also legislate in a way that honors King Jesus. These are the types of radical, bold prayers that we should pray and even acknowledging that, that for them this meant praying for Nero, Paul is basically kind of anticipating the question that they would say, well, even that king, we should pray for even that king, that ruler, even this group of people or that group of people. And he says, yes. And so in verse three, he says, yes, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior. So he's reinforcing that point and he reinforces it through the gospel. So again, he drives us to the gospel as what motivates our prayers. So our prayers should be indiscriminate for all types of people from the top of the totem pole of society all the way down to the bottom. And second, our prayers should be evangelistic. Look at verses three and four. God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So immediately as we look at this, we have to ask the question, okay, God desires all people to be saved. What does that mean? And the first answer to that is simply, it means that God desires all people to be saved. Period. Right? We can't explain this away. Now, depending on your theological tradition that you come from, you may or may not see some of the questions there that would be raised by a text like that. But at face value, we have to approach this text and just acknowledge that Paul didn't make a typo. The Holy Spirit didn't make a typo. We're intended to have these words. The gospel is radically universal. Not everyone will be saved, but God desires all people to be saved. It is right to also ask, but how are we to really understand that, though? Because if we misread this passage or if we take it out of the context of the whole of Scripture and what it says about who is saved, then we'll find ourselves in a classic theological bind. What do I mean? Well, we'll think about what it means that God desires something. Romans 9, 19 says, no one can resist his will. Right? Psalm 115 says, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So if God's decree, his will, is sovereign, immutable, right? you can't stop it. If that's how God's will works, then there's a problem here because all people are not saved. I flip a few pages back to the end of the book and, and you'll see that there's a lake of fire in eternity future. That not all people are, in the end, saved. So either, either God is impotent and he can't accomplish what he desires and we have a contradiction on our hands in scripture or there are other desires in God as well and there's complexity here and we have to read this passage in light of the whole of scripture and that's what we need to do because scripture is its own best interpreter. For instance, we know in Romans chapter 9 verse 22 it says that God is desiring to make known his wrath upon vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So God desires all people to be saved. But Paul, the same author, also elsewhere where uses the same word for desire to describe his desire to make known his wrath on a portion of humanity. 
So his desire in the broadest sense includes salvation and what we would call reprobation, people that are not saved, that God chooses to pass by. God's desire to save isn't identical across the whole of humanity. And here's a place where I think some rhetorical questions would help us. If God desires all people to be saved, well, what does that mean? If it means that God desires each and every individual human being who's ever breathed oxygen and walked on the face of this earth, if he desires every single one of them to be saved with the exact same fervency and intensity, he, he, he intensely desires them each individually. Well, did God desire the salvation of Pharaoh, whose heart he hardened? Did God choose and pursue the salvation of the Amalekites that were wiped out? Did he, did he desire that the prophets of Baal would be saved, even though they were slain by the prophet? Did he desire the salvation of Judas Iscariot? We have to make some distinctions. And by the way, if we don't, unbelievers will. Because if you're talking to an unbeliever and they know their Bible, they will bring you here. And they will ask those questions. We have to be ready with an answer. The text becomes absurd if we push it that far. Because Christ is not just a, a, not just a Savior who dies and who's raised. He's also a priest who remains and who intercedes for everyone that he died for. So let's think about this. If Christ died in the exact same sense for every single individual human being who's ever breathed oxygen on this planet, does that mean that Jesus is in heaven interceding for people who are currently burning in hell? Is Jesus a miserable failure as a high priest if he's interceding for every human being, including the damned? I don't know about you, but I believe that Jesus saves everyone he intends to save. That doesn't always make me feel good because in my sinful lack of perspective on eternity and in my sinful prioritization of what I perceive to be the good of, of fellow sinners over the glory of the triune God, I would like to say, well, why don't you save that person? And why don't you not save that person? And, and we tend to question God and drag him down to our level. But Jesus doesn't fail as a high priest. He saves whom he will save. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, save forever, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He does not fail as a savior. So his, his salvation that he offers, his redemption that he applies is particular. It is specific. And it's gloriously specific to a group of people. So what does it mean that he desires all people to be saved? We have to acknowledge that God has a heart for all. And that is a glorious truth, one that should shape us. We don't know who is elect, who's chosen, and who's not. But God has a desire for all. But also, and this is critical, just like in real estate, my mother used to be a real estate agent when I was younger, and so I would go with her from house to house as she was showing houses off. And the rule of real estate is location, 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 right? Well, in Scripture, the rule of interpretation is context, context, context. So let's look at the context. When Paul said in the last two verses that we just looked at, I urge that prayers be made for all people, He's not saying go through the phone book. He's saying for kings as well, for all who are in high positions. So people in every station of life, all sorts of people, all classes of people. This is an all, not exhaustive of every individual, but this is an all of inclusion of every type of person. It's a generic all. 
all types of people. And it's important for us as well that we can't draw lines, whether it's racial lines, ethnic lines, lines of nationality, socioeconomic lines. God desires all types of people to be saved. This is the same sense in which Paul says in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So he has a special ministry in saving those who believe. He's the one and only Savior available to all. So what does this have to do with prayer? Our prayer must be robustly evangelistic. If we really believe this, that we need to pray for all types of people, each and every one that we meet, we need to pray for them to be saved because, one, God wants it. Right? Our Savior desires all people to be saved. God wants it. And two, Jesus is the only way. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one way to be saved. Jesus meant what he said when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Then we need to pray along those lines. Remember the throne room scene in heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 7, 9, where you see... That the lamb has ransomed for himself, that same word, ransom, people of every tribe and tongue and nation and language. He's saved a people for himself. That's what we believe. But notice the and in verse 4. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's an important conjunction. That's the most important conjunction that you'll read all day is that word and. Because we can speculate about who's elect and who's not elect. And we know that God desires all people to be saved. But this is a twofold prayer request. One, that they would be saved. Two, that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. You don't have one without the other. Salvation is by knowledge of the truth. You have to know the gospel to be saved. What is the gospel? He explains it. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I was interviewing someone earlier this week for a position on a nonprofit board for a Christian organization. And I asked him, what is the gospel? And his response was, well, it's the best book of uh, history and wisdom and advice you'll ever read. And it'll change your life. And I was kind of egging him on. I said, all right, what if you met me? You only had a minute to talk to me. I'm laying down in the street. I'm dying. I'm, I'm bleeding out. Tell me how to get to heaven. Well, you know, read the Bible. Man, help me out. My, my jugular is just, his blood is just gushing out. Help me. I, I need to know how to be saved. Well, take a look. We need to have this knowledge readily accessible for ourselves and the people that we come into contact with. Have an elevator pitch, right? Be able to summarize the gospel as succinctly as Paul does. There's one God and there's one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ who died for sinners. Boom. This is important. Not that all of us are going to be equally articulate all the time, but this is the invitation. This knowledge of the truth is required for salvation. We don't want to pray for the lost in such a way as to imply that God can save people by osmosis. God doesn't save by osmosis. I used to know a woman who would pray often for lost family members, and, uh, and she would comment frequently, I'm just trying to pray him into the kingdom, trying to pray him into the kingdom. And she had the best of intentions. And she was a, a wonderful prayer warrior. 
But you can't merely pray someone into the kingdom, right? If you're praying that someone would be saved and come to a saving knowledge of the truth, meaning that they know this invitation of salvation, they're embracing it as, for themselves, right? Just like we read in Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, right? Come to the waters. That's the invitation. If they know it and if they act on it, if that's what we're praying for, that kind of prayer necessarily has boot leather. And we need to be willing to put that same boot leather on our prayers because there's one mediator he goes on, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So there's no pastor, there's no parent, there's no priest that can bridge the divide between you and God. Period. There's no mentor, there's no seminary professor, there's no famous preacher, there's no local preacher who can be that mediator for you. Only the God-man can bring man to God. couple things we need to do here as we pray indiscriminately and as we pray evangelistically. We need to pray for opportunities. We need to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And if you've ever prayed that prayer, uh, you'll notice, wait a second, dang it, God's answering this prayer all the time. <laughs> that, is, that is a prayer that God will almost always honor. And so we need to also pray for the willingness to take advantage of those opportunities. And then there'll be days where you don't want to pray for the willingness to take advantage of those opportunities. Pray for the willingness to pray for the willingness to take advantage of those opportunities. It's okay to pray that way. The Holy Spirit's in you. He's in your heart. He knows what's going on. He knows the wrestle. He knows the struggle. Just pray in that direction. If we're going to pray for people to be saved, we also have to be ready to share, to give them the knowledge that can save them. There's no loopholes for people who've never heard. Because they're already sinners and they're already accountable to God because of it. We need to pray for salvation and for the knowledge of the truth. Our prayer must be indiscriminate, must be evangelistic, and third and finally, our prayer must be missional. Paul says, For this, meaning this testimony of the gospel, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm not telling, excuse me, I'm, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul ties this into his own ministry. Why is he so emphatic about defending his credentials? I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Perhaps at least part of the reason is because of how this would have struck ancient first century ears, especially Jewish ears. Now, granted, he's writing to Timothy, but elsewhere he addresses his audience in the plural. He knows that Timothy is going to be sharing this letter with others. But to the Jews saying, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, that would be like saying, yeah, you know what? I'm, a, I'm an apostle. I'm a missionary to pagans, to heathens, to the unreached, to God-haters, to idolaters. Those people way out there as far as you can imagine, yep, they're the ones that I've been called to reach. This is a profound mystery according to Scripture. Because throughout redemptive history prior to the coming of Christ, God was, for a season, mostly focused on geopolitical Israel, right? To be a part of the kingdom of God was also to be a part of the kingdom of Israel, for the most part. And so Paul talks about this mystery, which has now been revealed in Christ, in Ephesians 3. You're welcome to turn there if you want. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 4, reading through verse 10. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then listen to this. So that through the church, right, this this entity of Jews and Gentiles, and here we are, a room full of Gentiles for the most part, half a world away from where this was written, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So heaven is watching. Hell is watching. And they're astounded when they realize what God is doing in gathering in people of all nations, all tribes, and all tongues into this. Listen, this is not impressive from a physical standpoint. The building modifications, great job on the interior design folks in the church. Furman's hats off. Like, love the layout, love the carpets. I know you guys helped pick a lot of that, right? But this, this what you're seeing right here, these people, this building, what we're doing, this doesn't look impressive from a physical standpoint. But spiritually, what is happening here is crazy. Heaven and hell are captivated by seeing the descendants of pagans and former pagans gathering here, worshiping Israel's God. And here and in other locations throughout the planet for the last 2,000 years, the kingdom of God is unstoppable. Our prayer must be missional. And that's our third point here. And why drive the difference between evangelistic and missional, right? Second point, our prayer must be evangelistic. Third point, gospel-shaped prayer is missional. What's the difference, right? Missions, evangelism, it's all one It's all one thing. Well, evangelism is always a part of missions. If you take evangelism out of missions, you no longer have missions. You have mercy ministry. But missions is more than evangelism. Missions is necessarily more than evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith in Christ. Missions is doing that and also taking the whole missionary task cycle, making disciples, discipling them further, bringing them into newly formed churches, strengthening existing churches, and then getting them mature enough to the point where leaders are leading their own churches and even starting to send their own workers to reach their local context. It's taking that whole cycle and exporting that globally, especially in the places, the outer fringes of where the gospel hasn't gone yet. So that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 15, and he quotes Isaiah here, he says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now listen to this. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Why would Paul say, I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ? Do we believe, whatever the population was, whether it was in the hundreds of thousands or in the millions, do we really believe that all throughout Asia Minor and Palestine and and modern-day Turkey, that Paul fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, that everyone was saved, or that every individual had even had a chance to hear the gospel? No. But he had planted beachheads of believers who could reach each of those contexts. That's missions. It's taking the evangelistic activity of the church, the, the reproducing cycle of the church, and it's taking that process and it's exporting it and planting it down in seed form so that at least they can reach their context. And Paul says this, 
I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So when we realize that he was sent to the Gentiles, we're realizing he was sent to those who had no access to Scripture, little access to Scripture. They weren't certainly as near to that access as the Jews were. Now, there were Gentiles that were familiar with Israel's God. But Paul, as the apostle to the Gentile, he's, he's, he's going to those who didn't have access to this knowledge before. And today, according to our statistics, and these are imperfect statistics, but there's about 2.9 billion people on the planet. That's a third of the Earth's population who are not only unsaved, who are not only unbelievers, but they are unreached. Unreached meaning that if you look at the number of churches in their populations, the number of missionaries working with them, there are so few in number. There's so few ministries. There's so little evangelism happening that chances are for most of these 2.9 billion individuals that they will be born into a culture, they will live and they will die without ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ. And in many cases, not even in proximity to a church to visit, right? What if I have questions? Let me find the nearest Christian and ask them a question. They don't have access to a church because there are none or access to a Bible if they're trying to figure it out. Now, if we prioritize anything in evangelism, and again, as I mentioned in our prayer this morning, we need to be reaching our local context, but, but there's a natural priority as well to these people who don't even have any opportunity to find out, even if they wanted to. Our prayer must be missional. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? How will they hear of him unless someone preaches? How will someone preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. So many of you are aware of Elise, whose last name we won't share for security purposes, uh, who's going as a missionary supported by our congregation and, and others uh, to North Africa, to a Islamic people group that is 99.999% Muslim. For years, we've been praying for her and for the team there, which currently only consists of single ladies who are doing evangelism, who are getting to know people in the community. But we've been praying for a married couple to join that team, to provide some balance, some diversity, to also provide the leadership, which we believe that leadership in the local church is through men who are able to be ordained to the office of, of elder, pastor, provide some spiritual leadership there as well. And there's a dynamic missing there, especially if the goal is church planting, right? So we've been praying for that added element to the team and, and uh, with, with little luck. And um, earlier this week, I, I was reminded in my morning prayer time, like, oh, yeah, pray for that country again in North Africa and pray for that team to, to get a married couple. And uh, I, I mentioned it briefly in my prayer. And then I go into work at our missions agency the next morning. Actually, it was later that morning and find out that this couple who was here for training, who was thinking that they would go to Israel, has now decided we're going to go to, insert name of secretive North African country here. God answers those prayers. When we pray what Jesus commanded us to pray in Matthew 9, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. When we pray that God would send out workers to reach these unreached, 
these Gentiles who are far off, who don't have access to the gospel, God answers those prayers. It's amazing and a beautiful thing to watch. And one thing that I would add, let's pray that for this church. I know that's a risky prayer, right? We are... We are at a bare minimum of personnel here in the season that we've been in. Let's be honest. It's hard to think about what it would mean to lose someone someday. But let's pray that in the coming months and years, a missionary long term would be sent out in a pioneering capacity from this church to reach the nations. Why not pray that? Why not pray a gutsy prayer like that and see what God does? I encourage you to join me in praying that. In conclusion, the minister and the church personally and corporately, must fight for faith and love through prayer that's shaped by the gospel. So to pray in a way that's shaped by the gospel, we pray indiscriminately, all types of people, all nations, tribes, languages, tongues, princes, paupers, every station of life. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they would bow the knee to to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Not that the church and state aren't separate things, but that they shouldn't be interfering with each other, but they both answer to Jesus Christ as Lord. So to pray that our leaders would submit to Jesus Christ as Lord explicitly, to pray for the conditions that the gospel would be able to be spread, that we would be able to live peaceful lives on mission. We ought to pray for people to be saved, all kinds of people. We ought to pray for the opportunity to give them the knowledge that they need to be saved. And we ought to pray for missions and have missional prayers. Because Paul, the one writing to us, that was his mission. And we need to pray for those who don't have access to this knowledge so that they would be saved as well. So it seems fitting to close in prayer since we're talking about prayer. So join with me in a word of prayer and then we'll close with a final song. Father, we want to pray that your name would be hallowed and honored in all the world. We pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Lord, for our president, for our leaders at the state level, at the local level, at every level of government and policy, we pray that they would allow the church to do its job, to do its mission, that they would not interfere, that we would be able to live peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. We pray that our leaders would bow the knee to you as Lord. As Psalm 2 says, you warn kings to kiss the sun lest they perish in the way. And so we pray that our leaders would acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. We pray that this week you would give us opportunities and we would be faithful to share Christ as we have opportunities with neighbors, coworkers, family members throughout the week. And when we're unfaithful, help us to get back on the horse, to recognize that you died for our sins of omission as well as our sins of commission, and to continue to share out of the overflow of grace, not out of guilt. And finally, Lord, we pray that we would be able to see missions supported from this church, that we would see a missionary sent out from this church personally. And we pray that you would bless the workers that are out there already laboring among those who have never had a chance to hear. Let our church, Lord, be known for this kind of gospel-shaped prayer. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.